Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, I want to be the Prime Minister because it just seemed obvious that that was the best job. So why wouldn't everybody want to be the Prime Minister? So I remember going to my school office and looking up the Prime Minister's office number in the phone book. I called them up and said, hey, my name's Rebecca. I'm a third form student at Wellington Girls College. And I'd like to set up a meeting with David Longy, who was the Prime Minister at the time, for my project. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, why not follow us on Instagram, where we post daily. You'll find us if you search for Don't Stop Us Now podcast. And now for this week's episode. This week's guest really had me thinking about those times I've been in a meeting and there's been a man who wouldn't look me in the eye and seemed to ignore what I said. I know what you mean, Gret. It's happened to me many a time, but I also just loved what our guest, Rebecca Campbell, had to say about how she tackled this. I know. We both just love this interview, don't we? Because it's so jam-packed with Rebecca's honest stories and useful tips and advice we can all try. We should tell our listeners, though, I guess, a little bit more about who Rebecca is. Yes, indeed. Rebecca is a New Zealander living in Sydney who's a serial entrepreneur and is now founder of her third business, Zambezi. Zambezi is a recently launched online marketplace for career-related workshops. Prior to Zambezi, Rebecca was co-founder of a well-known cafe ordering app in Australia called Hey You. She started her career and first significant business in the music industry, following a university summer holiday project that took off. In today's episode, you'll hear Rebecca talk about how she figures out what business to start next, and related to that, how she found her new purpose, one that would really last. You'll hear her fascinating experience working out how to own the room, and the surprise in store when she shared how inadequate she felt compared to some of her peers. So we really hope you enjoy this episode with the entrepreneurial and insightful Rebecca Campbell. So, Rebecca, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thanks. Great to be here. You've had quite an amazing entrepreneurial journey, and it's been completely an entrepreneurial journey, hasn't it? How did you actually start on your path of being an entrepreneur? Well, I think probably if I look back, it would have been very early in childhood. And I was an only child, so I think I probably spent a lot of time by myself, and so I did these projects. They inevitably became entrepreneurial projects, which was, like I set up a little stall on the side of the road selling flowers, and I collected golf balls and sold them back to the shop. 
I then got like all these other kids started doing the same thing and then the, the shop got annoyed and then I kind of negotiated for myself the exclusive right to sell to the shop. So I became the agent for all these kids. Gosh. I don't know. I was always just doing things like just little projects like that all the way through primary school, you know, high school. I was the person that ran my school newspaper. I was the person that organized my school formal. You know, I did them both profitably. <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess I just was always going to be an entrepreneur. So I'd love to take you back to sort of the beginning of your professional career. In fact, one step before that, which is university. So what did you study at university if you had that mindset of, I want to be an entrepreneur when I grow up? Yeah, I didn't really know in what industry or what it would look like. I originally thought I would probably end up in politics just because I was very passionate about certain issues, but I wanted to go into business first. You know, funny story is I met the Prime Minister when I was of New Zealand when I was 12 for my school project. I had to ask all these kind of set questions about what you wanted to be when you grew up and what you studied and things. And he told me that he wished he'd got into business before he went into politics. So that was another reason why I thought I should get into business first. And I just have to interrupt. Is that a Kiwi New Zealand thing that you get to meet the Prime Minister for your school project? No, no it wasn't. It was the second week of high school and we had this project which was we had to go and interview somebody who had the job that we wanted when we grew up. And we had a set of questions and we had to say, you know, it was like things like what did you study at school to become like, you know, a nurse or a teacher or a doctor or whatever it is that you wanted to be and about what the job is like. And so I was like, well, I want to be the Prime Minister because it just seemed obvious that that was the best job. So why wouldn't everybody want to be the Prime Minister? So I remember going to my school office and looking up the Prime Minister's office number in the phone book. I called them up and said, hey, my name's Rebecca. I'm third form student at Wellington Girls College. And I'd like to set up a meeting with David Longy, who was the Prime Minister at the time, for my project. And then she said, okay, what you need to do is send a letter. I wrote a letter saying what I needed to ask and what it was for. And then I called back a week later and she said, yep, we've got you scheduled in next Tuesday, two o'clock or something like that. And so then I went back to my class and I remember telling my teacher I needed to get the time. And then she didn't believe me that I'd set this up. And so they wouldn't give me the time off. And it wasn't until the Prime Minister's office called to change my time, because there'd been a scheduling change, that they were like, oh my gosh, she really has organized this. But it was amazing just experience because he was so friendly and it was so exciting, I guess, for me to meet him. Absolutely. But the biggest lesson I got out of that was that I thought it was just a really an ordinary thing to do. I thought that, you no, know, of course you'd want to be the prime minister because it's the top job. Why wouldn't you want the top job? And I need to set up a meeting, so I'll just go and call up and ask for one. And the fact that everybody thought that this was something that you couldn't do, that taught me a huge amount You know, as I thought about what I wanted to do when I put projects together, you know, as a teenager or in my 20s when I started running businesses, if I wanted to get a partnership with a particular company, there's nothing to stop you calling the CEO and asking for a meeting. Whereas lots of people seem to think that, you know, you had to go through certain channels. So that was the lesson out of that, really. It was, there's no one who's unreachable. And if you want to do something, you just do it. That's such a great story. And it's so true, isn't it? You lose nothing by asking and taking it from there. Yeah. Yeah. And if our research is correct, then I gather this is where you began at university, some of your first kind of ventures in a way, yes? Yeah. University, you got these crazy long holidays in like three months. I was like, what am I going to do with these three months um, at the end of the year? And so I thought I should do a project. My hometown of Wellington had the highest youth suicide rate in the world at that time. And so for some reason, no one really talked about it. So I thought we should have some kind of event to talk about this issue and – I thought you know, the way you run an event when you're 19 years old is you have a concert. So 
thought I'd enlist a whole lot of bands to play at my concert, which would raise awareness of youth suicide. And I thought it'd also raise awareness of all the support organizations. And so, again, a friend who worked in a student radio station had Neil Finn from Crowded House's home phone number. And so I called him up. He happened to answer. And I explained that I was putting together this concert. And this is the issue. This is why it was important. And he happened to also be passionate about that issue. He listened to me. He asked me to send a fax through, which was, again, I like got my mum and me had to drive out to Dick Smith to get a fax machine so we could fax Neil Finn's house. And then he agreed to do it. And then once he agreed to do it, every other band in New Zealand wanted to be on the bill as well. And then I got sponsors and put that together. And it was very hard. Sounds like it was easy in hindsight, but it was the hardest thing I'd ever done at that stage. And because I had to raise a lot of money and people pulled out. And But in the end, it was really successful. We had like 15,000 people. It was all broadcast on television. That gave me a huge amount of confidence, I think, of like had an idea and then put it together and managed to get people on board and then create it and it was successful. And then I thought, okay, well, if I can do that, then you know, if I work really hard, I can make things happen. So then I had to figure out what I wanted to make happen. Next. And what was that? Because you continued with music, didn't you, for a number of years? I started my own management company. Um, and then I started my own independent record label with Warner Music. And so I ran that company for kind of eight, eight or nine years, I think, until, until I was 30. And then yeah. a bit of a pivot. Yeah, then I just thought it was a very fun business managing bands. And you know, I built careers of bands like Evermore and Matt Corby and Operator Please and a huge amount of success. And it was a great business. But it was a personal services business. So it wasn't the kind of business that I was ever going to be able to sell. So I had this moment at the big day out. I remember in Melbourne and I'd been on the big day out tour every year for about six or seven years. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm really. I don't want to be here and I shouldn't be here because someone else really wants to be in my place. And I you know, I just didn't want to end up being, I guess, in my 40s and managing bands. And I just didn't see that as my future. So I had to figure out something else to do, which was hard to let go of at the time. It was a you know, very successful and profitable business that I basically had to pull to pieces. And I decided to get into tech. And so I had an idea, which was to build a platform to help bands sell more tickets. So that was my first attempt. Um, I raised a little bit of money, built the product. It worked a little bit, but it was never going to be profitable because I just learned a lot about the model didn't quite work and that it always cost us more to bring on board clients than we would ever make you know, as a return from each tour. But we sold the business to our biggest client, which was Future Music. We'd lost money. It wasn't a big success or anything, but I learned a huge amount about building technology products and building communities online. Um, and then I created another business called Posse, which was in referring your favorite shops. And then we ran that for a year and a half to two years and then decided to roll it up with another business called Beat the Queue to create a kind of all-encompassing shopping app, which is now known as Hey You. And now you've started another business. Tell us about how the idea for Zambezi came about and what Zambezi is as well. Sure. So I think going into my third kind of significant business, I looked at businesses that I really admire and founders that I really admire. And I noticed that they really had built businesses over a long period of time that they could call their life's work. They weren't. It's one thing to be an entrepreneur and to build businesses and then flick them and do the next thing and sell it. And that really wasn't the kind of career that interested me. I wanted to build something that I could do for 10 years and look back on, you know, when I'm 80 or 90 years old and be really proud of. And I felt like this is the time that I wanted to do that. So I thought I needed to really find a problem that I cared deeply about. I did a 
probably a year or so of research, doing lots of different programs, talking to lots of different people and looking at what are the biggest problems in the world and like energy and environmental issues that I care a lot about. And then also looking at like what problems I'm personally best placed to solve. And I came up with, I think the future of work was something that is one going to be a increasing and important problem for the world because it leads to so many other challenges as well, like social challenges when people are out of work or need to retrain and unable to. And so I thought that was the space that I wanted to build a business in. And I originally had another idea, which was in the career guidance space. And I built that product and wasn't successful. So it was like a very quick, like minimum viable product, trial, fail. Um, And at the same time as I was doing that, I was leading workshops on how to raise capital. And I found it really difficult to put together my own personal face-to-face program because I'd built my own website, do all my own marketing, sell tickets, run the logistics. It felt to me like renting out a spare room without Airbnb. I was like, there must be something which I can use to create and lead like a really high quality face-to-face, face-to-face program. There must be some kind of marketplace, but there wasn't. And then yeah, looking into, I was doing some work with some of the universities. You know, one of the vice chancellors said if we were designing the university today, it'd be very different to the way that it was designed 30 years ago, but we have what we have. And I remember thinking, oh, if I was designing a university today, what would it look like? And I thought, you know what? I think it would look a lot like my capital raising workshop. I think it would be a marketplace where really awesome experts in whatever field that they are in can create and lead really high quality face-to-face you know, and partially online, but you know, best practice programs because then we would be able to deliver really current content, which is super important given that the world is changing so fast. Like every course that you want to do, if you want to do a digital marketing course, for example, any institution you're going to go to is going to have outdated content before you even get taught it. So the only way to really create a cutting edge current current content is to enable real practitioners to create and lead programs and have people to share skills with each other. Using the marketplace model, we could create really high quality programs at pretty much lower prices than training institutions because you know we don't have the same kind of infrastructure. The, the idea is to build the Airbnb of education and do it in a way that's very high quality uh, and curated, but effectively that's the, the mission to build you know, hopefully the biggest education company in the world. Tell us, you know, how the MVP went for Zambezi. I built a minimum viable product just on WordPress by myself again. I managed to convince some friends to run workshops. So we launched with six workshops. I ran a launch event and on that night I sold 60 tickets. I was like, there's totally a market for this. Like, oh. it was like, I think when you have product market fit, it feels like people are eating it out of your hands. You know, just there's a pull as opposed to, you know, really trying to – push it and so both from the expert side people wanting to create and lead programs and also like particularly small medium-sized businesses wanting to upskill their teams there was a huge demand kind of from both sides of the market so it felt like a big opportunity yeah i can absolutely see that because this whole space is moving so quickly as you said but you've got some incredible experts too you've got people who have been at the coal face of the future, really. I mean, maybe talk about a couple of the people who are running programs for you so our listeners can get a sense of yeah, who they sure. are. So the whole idea is you know, our tagline is learn from people who do it. So we don't have any trainers on the platform. They're all people who have you know, either recently been a leading practitioner in that field or who are a leading practitioner in that field. So you learn public speaking, you know, one-day masterclass with the co-founder of TEDx Sydney or TEDx Melbourne 
Melbourne if you're in Melbourne. You do growth with the head of growth at Canva. You do technical leadership with the head of engineering at High Pages. So, yeah, like amazing people who have been very successful in their field and who are really have amazing kind of current insights in their field. You know, and you would never get those kind of insights from a traditional training institution. Amazing. It sounds like it's a really fantastic idea. Now, I just want to slightly change tax now. What I'm interested in is, you know, you just went through a really big sort of thinking process about opportunities to make a difference in the world. And you had a a very, very large canvas in which to choose something. So, What were your guiding principles that led you to Zambezi versus something else? I definitely had a set of principles. So one was it had to be a problem that I really cared deeply about, obviously. When you get five, ten years into a business, it's so hard. You've got to have something that gets you out of bed every morning that you're like, that's the problem that I'm solving and I don't care if it takes me the rest of my life. That was kind of number one. And then it had to be something where I felt like I was well-placed to solve that problem. So I had experience, a network, you know, I could speak with authority on that particular topic. Whereas just something to do with energy, I'm probably, there's probably other people that are better than me at solving that problem. So I felt like future of work was right. I've heard you talk quite a lot about, you haven't necessarily used this word, but I think it feels like it's underlying, which is your purpose. How's your purpose driven what you've done? Well, I think I was always very purpose driven when I was you know, at school and growing up and you know, running my youth suicide awareness program. And so I always wanted to have purpose in my career. I thought maybe you'd go into politics or uh, and then make a difference. And then I think it's very easy to lose that. And I did lose probably lose my way with purpose through my 20s and maybe early 30s. And then I, you know, probably having children made that really just gave me that perspective again. So I had to find a business that, yeah, had a purpose that I really yeah. felt was important. And what will success look like for you, not just on this day, but how would you define success for yourself personally outside of Zambezi in 10, 15, 20 years' time? Well, I'd really like to build a business that has a major impact. I'd like to have a business that where we can provide. You know, at the moment, it is largely very elite, amazing people from high-growth tech companies sharing their skills with other businesses, and that's awesome. But I would love to see it expand so that we can use our model and you know, experts in you know, small towns all over the country and all over the world to help people reskill and upskill so that you know, everyone is equipped for the future of work. And I'd love to see us be able to train 100 million people to go through our programs and have access to effective lifelong learning and be able to live more fulfilling, awesome. <laughs> more fulfilling lives. <laughs> That's pretty successful. <laughs> I'd love to turn now and think about your role as a, the CEO and founder of a startup and raising capital and running the whole show and being a woman. How has that affected any of your interactions with potential investors, for example, if at all? Or have you found that that's not an issue? I think it's very hard to know without coming back as a man and doing exactly the same meetings whether they would have gone any different. I do think, though, that raising capital is largely to do with personal relationships, deep personal relationships. And I would probably say that it's more likely that Almost all investors are men, you know. I remember going through 50 meetings and counting how many women were in the room, and it was like two, I think. That was a few years ago. But Out of 50 meetings? Yeah. Yeah. 
gosh. There was two women in two meetings. That's incredible. Plenty of women bringing the tea and coffee in, but actually sitting in the room, you know, who I was pitching to, it was very few. So is it easier for men to build relationships with other men? Probably. And that probably leads to more men getting invested in. Because if I look at people who have invested in me, you know, it's not about turning up and having a really slick presentation and giving it, you know, well. It's actually about forming deep personal relationships. People people who have invested in me are people that I have a relationship and who like me and who who feel like they can work with me and who are willing to back me as a person. You've been at the helm of numerous ventures now. And what was interesting in your venture, Hey You, the one before Zambezi, was for a while you had a male co-founder. How did that go when you were in a meeting room and the dynamics, particularly with external folk, and you were trying to get a point across? Initially, that was very hard because I have, as you said, always run my own ventures. So I guess I've always been the star of every meeting because most of the meetings have been with me. And then to to walk in with a male co-founder who, who was also very charismatic, you know, I did find that people would, both male and female, would kind of tend to gravitate towards him. They would tend to look at him and not look at me. I would tend to be asked to do the follow-ups afterwards. Frustrating. It was very frustrating. (laughs) So I did share my frustration with a couple of mentors. One is a woman called um, Geraldine McBride, who's been a mentor of mine since I was at high school. She's the stepmother of my best friend. At the time, she was the president and CEO of SAP for North America. And I remember sharing that I was finding it really difficult to be in these meetings and there was one person in particular who was would just never look at me in meetings, who was an important person in our business. And I said, what do I do, Jordine? And she said, you know, it's not him, it's you. And she's saying, you can't spend the rest of your life, the rest of your career being a complaint and that I really need to take responsibility for how I was coming across in meetings and that although, yes, this is a challenge for women, it's not a challenge for every woman and that, you know, there, there are some women, women like her who are incredibly successful and getting their message across in a, in a meeting and and being heard. So you know, I realized that it was up to me to make a change. I wasn't going to get anywhere by continuing to complain about it. There was no advice as to this is how you own the room. It was just, you know, do it. And so the next meeting I went into, I remember it was a big boardroom with a bank that we were working at with at the time. There was probably 12 or 13 people in this room. The meeting started. It was kind of meandering all over the place. And then I was like, right, okay, I'm just going to own this. So I actually got up and I asked the person who was standing at the head of the, sitting at the head of the table if I could swap seats with him. And then I opened my PowerPoint deck and said, look, I've got a presentation I want to run through now. And this is what, and I had an agenda. And then we, we just spent the rest of the time going through my agenda. And then I got what I, out of it, what I wanted to get out of it, you know, and we had a pathway. So. I think from that moment onwards, I just spoke up for myself and kind of decided I was going to own every meeting and it worked. And how did you feel when you got up and asked the person oh. at the head of the table, what was going through your mind? It was really hard. I felt Terrifying, like, I imagine. Yeah, I felt like, am I coming across as being aggressive? It is hard to get done what you need to get done without coming across as aggressive. And I always had that in my head of how am I coming across? Am I being too aggressive? If I sit back, then I'm being too passive. And it was this kind of like you know, back and forth dance that I was kind of always trying to work out. Which is far more unique, of course, for women to have to wrestle with than guys because yes. it's women that get the, the aggressive take. I'm sure my, my co-founder never had those questions going through his head. Then when I just decided to give up worrying about being aggressive and realize that, yes, maybe sometimes I will come across as being aggressive, but that really doesn't matter. It's much more important 
that I get done what I need to get done and that the business is successful because if the business is successful and on track, then everybody will be happy with me anyway. So whereas if it meanders off track because I haven't spoken up, then everybody will not be happy. So so I may as well just be myself. <laughs> so I think it's so powerful, that story. If you had to distill into a couple of words your mantra for how you have that presence and own the room, what would those words be? The funny thing is that once you do it a few times, I don't think about that anymore at all. I did, I read up a bit about imposter syndrome. I wrote an article about imposter syndrome. And I thought, how do you overcome imposter syndrome? And there's very little written about, you know, there's a lot written about that women, you know, 80% of women have imposter syndrome, but not much about what you do about it. And so I thought that if I really worked on my body language, that might make an impact. And so I read and watched a lot on you know, how to improve my body language. And before I went into meetings, I would do power poses and try and change kind of the hormonal balance yep. of going into the meetings. Love that. I did that for um, probably like, I don't know, maybe six or 12 months even of every meeting before I'd, I'd go into the bathroom, I'd do my power poses, I'd watch how I shook hands, I'd watch how I was sitting. Um, and then after a while, I did start to feel differently. And then you know, after a while, I kind of stopped thinking about it. And then I didn't have imposter syndrome anymore, thought about it, and I was like, I don't really feel like that anymore. So I think that was super helpful. Yeah, wow. And what you did then was you noticed it, you got some awareness, you got a technique, and you built a new habit, and it went away. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and actually, I know that you are quite a prolific writer, I have absolutely no idea how you managed to be a prolific writer and be such a prolific entrepreneur all at the same time. How do you do that, by the way? Well, I think I started a long time ago in my first business, really. And I just noticed that every, pretty much every week, there would be one key lesson and I'd be out for my jogs in the morning and it'd be going around my head and I just would almost be writing it in my head as this is what I've gotten out this week. And I thought, you know, I just should start getting some of these things down and then sharing them. So I started a blog and it was very open and transparent. And back before, I think many people were being open and transparent. And yeah, it did really, it was like lots of people liked it. And I felt like it was a very therapeutic process for me to, to share what I was going through. And also I felt like writing it down every week and I've solidified that lesson somewhat more than just having it in my head. Yeah, the blog became pretty big, actually. And then of all publications, the New York Times picked it up. And one of the editors there had started reading it and he contacted me and he said, I've got all of these very successful business people writing, you know, retrospectively about what they, you know, the challenges that they had. But on the other side of being really successful, they didn't have anybody who was actually writing it as they were doing it. So I started writing for the New York Times and I wrote for them for a couple of years and then we've been writing for the Financial Review for the last two years. Fantastic. We'll share some of your articles, if that's okay, um, with yes, our listeners, do. Do. Um, because we found them really helpful, so I'm sure they will. <laughs> Actually, in one of your articles, you wrote about the challenges of comparing yourself and how you had worked through that. Can you talk a little bit about how that has sort of come about for you and what you have done to get over comparing sure. yourself? Well, I think at the time I wrote that, I'd just been to the Mai Tai conference, which was a conference of kite surfers, kite surfing entrepreneurs As you in, do. Uh, in Maui. So one of my investors, Bill Tai, um, runs this conference every year. And 
it was like the most intimidating group of people you could ever imagine. Like everybody was like absolutely beautiful sports people and had created multi-million or billion dollar companies. Wow. It's like the founders of Dropbox and like yeah, all sorts of very successful companies were there. And the funny thing was though, when I was talking to people at the conference, there was one guy who had exited two companies, like hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, exits. And then I was talking about how I felt really intimidated by all these people that were there. He said that he really struggled with the same thing because, you know, all of his friends had IPO'd and he'd never IPO'd. So he felt like he was a failure. And it was just like, how could you possibly think that? That's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> and I realized that everybody thought that. Yeah. Um, and then I remember th- trying, trying to take it like, what's the kind of ultimate extension of that and thinking, I wonder if, you know, Bill Gates kind of goes to bed, like thinking about Einstein and how maybe he hasn't quite contributed to the same <laughs> level. There's always that next level up that you look to. So I think just realizing that everybody felt like that at that event. And then when I wrote a blog about it, I had so many people who were at Might I write to me going, oh, my God, I can't believe that you felt like that. I felt like that too. And I was like, wow, you're one of the people that I thought had everything. So, yeah, I think just recognizing that everybody did it and then realizing that, you know, if someone else is successful, it has absolutely no impact on me or my life or, you know, what I'm doing. You know, it's great for them if they've managed to have success. I should look at what I can learn from them and you know, a lot of them are my friends and just be happy for them. But also I think – Know, more recently having children and things. Yeah, I just have no time to even think about those kind of things anymore, really. I just have time to focus on you know, trying to be a good mum and partner and trying to get my business off the ground. I certainly don't spend any time thinking anymore about what anybody else is doing or comparing myself. It is a brilliant way of thinking about it, isn't it? You just can't afford the time to yeah. waste thoughts. And looking back, if you had to give advice to your 30-year-old self – what would that advice be? I think that going right back to my probably my 20-year-old self, as I started to go into business, I think I'd spend a lot less time worrying about things, a lot less time worrying about what other people think. Yeah, okay, I guess comparing myself to what other people are doing and just do my thing. I think going back to the purpose question and not losing sight of what your kind of North Star is. I think I did lose that for some years in my career and I felt like I actually lost quite a bit of time by focusing on things that I didn't feel like was really what I wanted to be doing. And then I got stuck in and I didn't want to give up. So yeah, I probably lost some years there. So I think really having that North Star and being very conscious of it throughout your entire career, I think then you can probably get further. On that note of finding your purpose, if you were advising someone who sitting there so busy saying, but I actually have no idea what my purpose is, how would you advise them to start? I think think about what gets you upset like what is it that you see on the news or when you read when you hear like what is it that makes you angry and then like really try and distill down what is it that you deeply care about and try and distill it down into one thing there's probably lots of things you know when I hear about you know, domestic violence or I get very upset anything to do with like women's challenges like there's all sorts of things that get me the environment has been a huge one for me but when I really started to distill that down okay what is that one thing I can't be passionate about all these things I can really only make an impact in one area I thought actually it's the future and then what are the different things that are going to impact the future and then I managed to channel that into future of work because that's one very important area of the future where I could make an impact so 
thinking about what gets you is a good start. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of doing it, actually, because most people say, you know, look at where your passions and your strengths align. But what you're saying is it's sort of the same, but slightly different. Look at where you get really annoyed and upset and wound up and then focus on on that because then you can solve it. Yeah, that, well, that's what worked for me. Yeah. So I don't know if that works for everyone, but that was a good way for me to really identify at a core like what it was that was really important to me. So on that note, Rebecca, this has been a fascinating discussion. Before we wrap up, how can listeners find out more about you or your writing or Zambezi, of course? Sure. Well, please go to www.zambezi.com. Check out all of our programs. Um, my email is just Rebecca at zambezi.com. We're still new, so I'm still taking all the customer support emails. So please, I'd love to hear your suggestions for programs or if you have any questions about what we're doing. I also have my own website, which is just rebeccacampbell.com, and I put most of my writing up there as well. So Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been a fantastic conversation, and we can't wait to see what amazing things Zambezi does. It's a great idea, and all the best with it. Thanks very much for having me. Rebecca shared so many great tips and tools, didn't she? Absolutely. And what didn't surface was that Rebecca did this interview when her second baby was only six weeks or so old. Fortunately, we managed to schedule the interview for when the baby was asleep. But, you know, listening to that interview again, I loved how Rebecca thought really strategically about what ingredients her new business had to have. And then she tested it as quickly and cheaply as possible. And of course, that testing doesn't have to apply just to a new business, but also to any new product or service within an existing company. Yeah, and I thought the bit where Rebecca talked about that hugely successful entrepreneur who'd exited two companies for hundreds of millions of dollars, who was still comparing himself negatively because he hadn't IPO'd a business yet, was fascinating. And it just makes you realise how ridiculous comparing yourself is and how we all do it. I know, and it's so frustrating. It's one of those thought kind of habits and patterns we just have to keep practising interrupting, don't we? Absolutely, it certainly is. Well, that's it for this week's episode. If you enjoy this show, please sign up for our newsletter at don'tstopusnow.co. We share bonus, useful tips and tools from time to time here. And of course, let you know when a new episode is waiting for you. So thanks for tuning in. Ciao for now. See you back here in two weeks. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.